Hey, Mike. Hey, how's it going, Alan? Good, thanks. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. How about me? We good? Yep. Yeah, we are. Perfect. So, um, yeah, I appreciate you taking the time with me today to think through some ideas and options and give me your input and insight on what you think would be some of the next best steps, um, things I might consider. Um, yeah, I value your input. No, I appreciate you asking the questions and giving me the opportunity to kind of talk through my thoughts. And it always helps me refine my own ideas whenever I have an opportunity to discuss them with people. So, Cool. So uh, I guess for those listening, the, the bit of background here is it is August 7th, I believe. Yes, um, sir. Yeah, 2019. And as of August 15th, 2019, so in a week or so, uh, I will have tracked my attention for a full year, 365 days, 24-7. And prior to that, I had tracked my activities from the January of January 1st, 2018 to August 15th, uh, 2018, but then upgraded, evolved as it were, to attention, trying to help uh, people ultimately with the attention economy. I felt it was important for me to understand where my own attention went. And so the reason, one of the reasons I've invited Mike here to chat with me uh, is to reflect on and maybe ask some questions as well about how this first year went and what I learned. And I haven't done all the data analysis yet, and I might do that in a bit, but what is the next best step? What can I try possibly in the second year that would be different or better in somewhat of a continuous improvement way? Is there something that I can, is there something new that I can do now that this is an established habit? Uh, do I maintain the status quo? Do I focus my attention elsewhere? Um, you know, that, that type of thing. So, so what are some of those options? Um, so I think first we should probably define terms for people that are a little bit, uh, not in the know for what you've been working on and just kind of sure. refresh myself as well. What does it mean to track time and what does it mean to track attention? Right. So, so I started off by tracking my activities as it were. Now, both of them are tracking time, but uh, I, I started by tracking my activities and this is what people would think of first. This was the first seven months or so of 2018. And specifically what I would do is I had a list of 40 or so different things that I would uh, spend time on uh, and that would include my you know spending time with my kids spending time with my wife uh, I would include all the different types of work that I do uh, or the different facets of my business it would include uh, self-care showering that kind of stuff um, it would include driving transportation eating making food all that kind of stuff and so the idea behind tracking my time was twofold first of all it allowed me to reflect on how I did spend my time and compare it to what I had wanted to do and how well I was doing the other thing which was kind of interesting is just the very act of measuring it and making I guess making it a conscious decision to switch from one activity to another it actually changed how I behaved right the, the act of measuring how you behave changes the behavior itself, regardless of whether you choose to do any deeper reflections. Um, so that in itself was, was useful, again, just because it brought things to a conscious front. And after seven months of that and establishing that habit, I saw an opportunity to 
do this in a little bit more depth. And so that, those first seven months, that was all done in 15 minute increments. And I've got that data tucked away somewhere, uh, tucked away somewhere. And I saw the opportunity to measure my attention because what I noticed was even though sometimes we are doing something, let's say with our hands, whether it's washing the dishes or, or driving or the like, that sometimes our attention was elsewhere. Um, now, obviously for driving, my attention was typically on the road, but you know, you have conversations with your kids and to a certain extent, there are uh, things we can do that don't require uh, our full focus, right? Like walking <laughs> um, and, you know, chewing gum and that, that kind of stuff, at least I hope so. Um, so the, the opportunity was, well, instead of measuring my activities, can I measure what has my attention, right? And I think the goal there was, can I pay attention to what has my attention? Mm-hmm. And the, the value in that is that if I have this third-party perspective or third-person perspective on myself at most times, then I can be a little bit more conscious, a little bit more rational about what has my attention and, and remember to ask myself whether you know, that is relevant to what it is that I value, whether it is a good use of my time. Um, the threat really of the attention economy for those who are not familiar with it is that uh, attention is now a progressively scarce resource. It is valuable because it, of course, is our time and our, our livelihoods or our lives. And anyone who's selling a product or service or even supporting or giving or anything um, needs our attention to be able to do that. Uh, so there is this, there's going to be this escalation of a bit of a war for our attention. And that is the attention economy. And I'm trying to get ahead of the game here, both in t- terms of learning how that works and supporting others in preparing for it. Um, and so I think the more conscious we are of what has our attention, again, the, the more able we are to assess whether that is relevant to us, assuming we've done the self-awareness work in, you know, ahead of time to sort of define those, um, those things. And yeah, so it's been a year now of measuring my attention and it isn't in 15 minute increments. Uh, it is in second increments and that sounds like a lot, but what that really means is, you know, I have a standard time tracking app and I use the same one between activities and attention. It's just really a different mindset. And if something changed, if, if my focus changed, I tried to remember to switch my state in the app. It only takes a second or so to switch states. And by saying both to myself and to others that you now have my attention, right? It was a great way to be mindful, right? To be present. Uh, it was a great way to recognize when things were getting my attention that weren't of value so that I could quickly switch away from them. Um, and I think the, that problem, those temptations and such were only gonna get worse given uh, that attention will become progressively more scarce relative to um, the different media and content uh, volumes out there. So I, I, I don't know, Mike, does that um, summarize well enough the you know, what I was trying to do? No, it does. Um, so then my next question is, with measuring attention, what do you see being, I, I don't know if it's more value add or more the danger zone of utilizing time that you can put your attention elsewhere because the task doesn't require your attention, like 
walking and chewing gum. The switching costs between transitioning attention to different things Mm -hmm. or um, the ability to see how often you're focusing on things that you don't wish to be focusing on. Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, right? So first of all, if there were extremely high switching costs, if it took me 10, 15 seconds to switch what had my attention at any given time, I think that would be too high. I don't think it would be a practical solution. Um, right now, there's a widget on my phone. I can do it in about a second. Uh, I happen to use uh, iPhone and iOS, so I can use voice commands. Siri, just give it a custom word with some automation I've already set up, which isn't hard, um, and just tell it that, my kids now have my attention. And so from a switching cost perspective, it's really low, uh, which means that, you know, I, I think I can afford to switch or rather <laughs> if my attention happens to switch between things often, I still think that's okay because the switching costs themselves are still a small fraction of that time. And the goal, right, is to use my time more effectively to recognize when uh, something comes up that is, different from what I, how I wanted to spend my time because different things grab our attention, of course, and that's not, a, that's not always under our control. Um, and the, the act of measuring it, I find, has as much of a benefit on how I spend it the, as, the, as reflecting on it does and removing or changing the triggers that are around me um, to minimize those distractions in the future. So then what is the next phase that you're trying to achieve or is that kind of what you're trying to figure out still? So um, part of what I'm trying to figure out, and I have some ideas, but I want to run them by you and just sort of stream of consciousness here. Um, at a high level, what I noticed as I started to track my, cha- my attention was um, I started tracking it with active attention um, or what I would call micro attention. So mm-hmm. whenever you know, my, my children would shout, <laughs> for example, and I would happen to be doing the dishes, right? I would switch my attention to them, even if it was only for a few seconds, and then switch my attention back to doing the dishes after whatever problem that was, was, you know, was resolved. And at the time, I didn't have this set up quite as efficiently as I do now. But I kind of got into this pattern of um, recording macro attention inter- rather than micro. And what I mean by that is, if you know my kids were awake and we were all in the house and I was obviously taking care of them because they're quite young and I happened to be doing the dishes or I happened to be cleaning up or I happened to be um, you know, helping the dog or something like that in the adjacent room, my f- focus or my attention was still on them because I was listening for them and the details of what they were saying and whether they needed support or help, right? Even though what I was actively doing or even what, even if what my eyeballs were on, right, happened to be something else. So what that ended up doing was it meant that I switched far less frequently during the day, right? I now have these large swaths of time where my kids have my attention everywhere from 6 or 6.30 in the morning up until the time when they nap, which is like 1 or 1.30. Um, that entire time they have my attention. I am making sure that at, at any given time, if they say something, right, that I will know that they've said something, that I will hear it, that I will understand it, um, just in case, obviously, of emergencies. And, um, you know, we're often in the same room, but not always if I'm doing other things. So um, I switched, I guess, partway through 
just it wasn't really a conscious decision. It'd be, it ended up being what was more practical at the time, right, to this macro attention level. Um, and the, one of the questions I have now is, given that I've mastered macro attention and had, has, have done that for, let's say, 11 of the 12 months, uh, do I now go back to micro attention with, uh, you know, with the more efficient switching um, automation and stuff that I have? And the benefit, I think, in that is they say the devil's in the details, right? And obviously, it's just an expression. Um, but there are opportunities, I think, in small moments. And there are threats, I think, in small moments of where it is we place our attention. And I think that I can be even more effective if I either manage myself or track myself at that level. Um, you know, when there is a bit of downtime, I know the kids are playing safely. I'm in the room with them, right? Can I quickly send out a, a note to a new potential contact, right? With your networking, or can I respond to that email quickly? And if I do so, right, should I be tracking that as my, as my focus? Again, sort of this, this micro attention, even though, you know, I'm still aware of, of what my kids are doing. Um, and so it's, it's, that's the first question I think I have is, do I go down to micro attention because that's where the next frontier of opportunity lies? Or is that so granular or, or would that cause switching so frequently that it would be impractical? So I think there's two significant opportunities here. I think the first one, as it relates to tracking micro and macro attention, is developing an understanding of which tasks can be passive attention and which tasks you degrade the quality of work done by being by having your attention other than the tasks that you're exactly working on right now. So right. if it's a, say, a customer email or a client email that requires deep thought, you could degrade the quality by trying to complete that email while you're spending time with your children, or you would mm -hmm. have to necessarily not pay attention to the children as much to be able to recruit the mental resources required to answer that high level of an email. Yeah. Um, things like washing the dishes, most of us have done enough to where we can do it in our sleep. It doesn't require a lot of active attention yep. where something like cutting the grass could require a little bit more because you at least have to pay attention to what's in front of you. Yes. Um, and kind of categorizing which activities you can get away with displacing your attention versus which ones you have to really hone in and eliminate the question of, can I be quote unquote multitasking in this moment and isolate those opportunities for effectiveness gains versus um, loss of quality of task, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And so Maybe the first step I would do there is because I have a list of I think it's 43 now different um, activities that can have my focus right or mm -hmm. I think that the plural of focus in colloquial language now is focuses but it's technically foci um, <laughs> and which I I, don't know, I looked up the other day because I was just curious but anyways um, so there's 43 different foci that I'm trying to uh, or that I that I manage and most of them are frankly ones that require my full attention 
And I like giving things my full attention anyways, right? I mean, people talk about our inability to multitask effectively, and I do believe that. I mean, I, I guess I'm a guy and there are, there are not prejudices, there are um, stereotypes that, that women can multitask more effectively. I don't know whether that's true. I'm not a woman, but, um, <laughs> you know, for me anyways, I've always noticed that I've been more effective when I can focus on, on one thing at a time. Yes. And it's getting to the point where, you know, my kids can be in the in a room or the adjacent room, and and I would still know whether they needed my attention, even if my focus had been on something else, like the dishes, or like an email, or like, um, yeah, creating content or something like that. No, absolutely. So, I'm now that it is less critical, I think, for them to always have my full attention. Uh, I think it is it's appropriate from their age standpoint to your, to your point to, to switch to micro attention, but only the activities that require my full attention as it were, and measure that. Right. Mm -hmm. And what I think that does is it, again, it makes me be more conscious about what I'm doing. Right. I have to, I have to name what I'm working on before I work on it. Right. It kind of gets me into that mindset. Now I am working on this. Right. And I'm basically stating that each time. Um, yes. And same thing when it comes to work, you know, interacting with my kids and interacting with my wife, interacting with other people. Right. I want them to know that they have my undivided attention and that when I switch to them. Right. It means that they have my full attention. And that is the definition of what I'm measuring, as opposed to this macro attention. I've always, I'm always kind of, you know, listening out for my kids and I, I'm always listening for them, even if I'm doing other things. I, I think the danger in that has been, I've, I've maybe recorded more time paying attention to them than has truly been the case mm -hmm. because there are things around the house that need to get done and it's easy enough to do them while they're, you know, running around like kids, um, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of leaning that direction. Now, one of the other issues or observations I had, and maybe you have some thoughts on this, Mike, is sometimes, let's say the kids are off to bed and um, you know, my wife is working on something in the evening and I am doing the dishes, right? Doing the dishes is something I could easily do passively if I were focusing on my kids. Yes. Right. Um, and so but sometimes it's the only thing that I'm doing because I don't have something more active to pay attention to. And it makes me wonder if in those, I should just record that as focusing on doing the dishes, focus on cleaning. Cleaning is just the, the category I have for all sort of household things. Uh, we're all, all mm -hmm. household cleaning. Um, or should I look at those passive activities? Should I know what those are such that whenever I need to engage in a passive activity, there is something else of value or something else more productive that I could do more actively while I do that passive thing, right? Because I feel like there's, I feel like it leaves room for something more productive if at times that's the background thing anyway. No, and sense? actually that's heading in the direction of my next thought was I feel like it's important to track 
the micro attention within the macro action because what you'll be able to do is see trends. You know, when I'm doing the dishes and listening to a podcast, it takes me 7% more time to do dishes because I'm not focusing on just dishes. So is the multitasking actually creating a net loss over time in my productivity because of the amount of extra time that something's taking or is there no residual effect at all? Um, Also, one thing that kind of makes me think about is in sales. Uh, When I was a sales trainer, we'd look at how much time somebody spent with a client to complete a sale. And then what we would do is we would break down how much of the time was spent showing the client product, how much time was spent on paperwork, how much time was spent closing, how much time was spent with follow-up. So that way we can make our salespeople more efficient by focusing in on the thing that they actually needed to improve. Because if you just say, okay, well, your average time with a client's three hours to make a sale and everybody else is an hour and a half, Mm -hmm. you don't know what you need to do to improve on. They might be the most efficient closer, but they spend too much time uh, filing paperwork because maybe you know they're dyslexic or something and there's nothing we can do. But understanding what's happening during the course of the action, I think provides significant value, especially for uh, someone who's tracking this much data over time. Right, so it's interesting that you bring up this idea of the micro-attention within sort of the, the macro activity. Uh, there's something similar, I suppose, I had at the beginning of 2018, so that first month, um, January of 2018 in full, I actually tracked three things. I tracked the activity I was doing, who I was with, and mm-hmm. where I was. Um, only did it for a month, uh, mainly because I found after a while, uh, you know, if I was doing a particular activity, that, that would almost always tell me where I was. So it was a somewhat, somewhat you know, yep. duplicate data. And in many cases, uh, what my activity would tell me who I was with too. So I, I stopped tracking those sort of three separate um, uh, clocks, as it were, right? And it just went straight with activity. But it makes me wonder if now if there's a, this opportunity to go back to some version of that where I track my micro-attention right? What is right in front of me? What is what I am dedicating my full attention to? But then secondly, track a a context, right? And that context could either be uh, the people I'm with. It could be uh, where I am. It could be both. Yeah. Right. Um, And the point there isn't so much that, yeah, there will be some duplication and the like. It isn't that these uh, tell me much that is new, but it does give me an interesting breakdown of how what things tend to have my attention in which contexts, and therefore I can figure out, well, in which contexts should I place myself to be more likely or more able to get some of these other things done? Yeah, there's also, so I don't know why, but when you first reached out to me about this topic, there's two things that immediately just popped in my mind. Um, And one is the concept of the entire point of all this analytics is to increase the quality of your life and live a more fulfilled life with less regret. Being able to isolate Mm -hmm. activities and actions based on your values and make sure that everything's aligned. 
And this is a very quantitative yep. analysis approach, but it's really hard to put context yep. on the qualitative historically. And I don't remember the exact mm -hmm. uh, guest that did it. I will look it up and send you the podcast episode. But on the Tim Ferriss show, okay. um, there was a guest that he had and he, at the end of every single day, went into a spreadsheet and he rated his day for how do I feel at the end of my day based on what I did. And he rated it either a two, a mm -hmm. one, a minus one, or a negative two. And then he would give a quick, you know, three to four line synopsis on why he felt the way he did. Two being, you know, absolutely outstanding day. Mm -hmm. Negative two being, you know, today wasn't what I expected. And, you know, I, this is how I'm feeling because of X. And then what he was able to do is just yeah. isolate the negative feelings or the positive feelings like, okay, so on two days, filter by twos, what are the types of comments that I'm leaving yeah. based on perfect days? And then the opposite, on days that I feel terrible by my day's outcome, what were the, the comments that I was leaving myself based on that? And really see the things in his life that might be value added towards his values, but actually drained him and potentially had a residual outcome into, or a residual effect into the next day. Because it's very hard to have a really bad day on Monday and then wake up Tuesday and have a great day. Normally there's a little bit of a, an easing back into feeling better because um, humans are just emotional creatures and we're not very good at just changing our emotional state immediately. Uh, and Yep, for sure. And those, those memories linger, they bother us. We, uh... Yeah, we but it's love. really hard for you today to look back on last Tuesday and think, well, how did that day make me feel? Or what were some outcomes that right. were unpredictable that maybe my time on task or my attention won't show? You know, um, another thing too is a lot of this is based off of your own feedback. But yeah, not only are you trying to improve your own life, but you're trying to improve your interactions with other people that being one of the primary regrets that yep. most people have. And there was another guest that Tim Ferriss had where he actually had um, his wife fill out a report card every single night of how she felt he performed his duties or the values that they've come together and said are valuable. And it was everything from um, being a provider, so financially, business, um, a lover, a father, a uh, someone you know taking care of the home I forget the terms but there's like five things and the goal was mm -hmm. to always have an average of a baseline like say you rated one through five the goal was to have an average of like a 3.8 across the board but obviously if he's on a business trip sure he's not going to be a very good lover because he's not home to give the wife attention yep. and that gave that person context on how are the actions and activities affecting those around me versus my own perception on how they're affecting? Um, and like I said, I'm not exactly sure why those both popped in my head, but as soon as you were talking about feedback and potentially what could be next, those were things that I was like, hmm, maybe this is at least a conversation worth having. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are a couple things that come, <coughs> a couple things that come from that. So one of the other options of this next phase or retention 2.0 or whatever you want to call it for the second year of tracking these types of things uh, is tracking mm -hmm. my emotional state. 
Now, there was something that I had done, again, early 2018, late 2017, as I was experimenting, and that was tracking, um, you know, which of the eight core emotions using the emotional model that I follow, um, I was feeling at a given time, and I could feel up to two of those at a time, those combinations would offer sort of unique uh, emotions in and of themselves. And uh, I did, I think, I probably posted on Instagram at the end of t January 2018, I think I posted a two, 2D or 3D plot of how I felt, if I'm not mistaken, given, you know, during each of the different uh, types of activities that I was doing. Um, so yeah, I, I have to double check on that. So that was something that I could do again, uh, and that would be effectively a separate clock, mm -hmm. right? Well, one that, you know, so I, I, I would track my emotional state when I recognize myself feeling differently, right? Or my emotional change changing, that I would quickly track that. Again, it, it doesn't take more than a second. And, uh, you know, later on, or at least on a, a continuing basis, reflect on which activities are bringing me the most joy, which activities are uh, making me more sad, which activities are uh, making me angry or, or afraid, right? Um, so I, I think t staying on top of my emotional state, I mean, that, that is ultimately what we're trying to optimize too, is, is ultimately we, we lead a fulfilling life, which is one where there's far more joy than not. And uh, you know, we can't really do that with short-term gratification at the expense of long-term gratification because those, those things catch up to us. But um, so that was another one of the options. And then bringing, uh, I guess, your second point in, there's this idea of feedback, right? Of how other people feel I'm treating them. And I, I think it's good, right? I need to continue to ask the questions of how I'm doing. And, uh, you know, my life personally, as well as professionally, has become more and more of about service, frankly, in the last few years. It was only until, I guess, up until recently when I gave that as much weight as I think it deserved. And I always, you know, tried to be um, a nice person, a friendly person and help out and like, I, I try to be a good guy. Uh, but it wasn't until the last few years where I tried to make this conscious effort of serving whomever I'm with. Right. And so if that means if I'm with my kids, if they have my full attention, then what that means is, you know, aside from something they want to do that is dangerous or, uh, you know, things that cross, you know, either safety lines or, or health boundaries, uh, you know, I'm, I'm game. If they want to play a game, then, then great. If they want to read a book, then great. If they want to, um, you know, play pretend, then, then that's what we'll do. So I don't know if they're mature enough yet to answer detailed questions about it, but I can certainly ask them, um, you know, better questions than I think. Maybe that would help them grow to appreciate that I care about how they feel, right? I, I hope that I'm showing that anyways, but I think it would make it more evident. And then obviously with my wife, I could ask those questions too. Um, my intent when I'm with her is to be of service, always uh, offering um, to you know, get her things or do things for her and the like. Not that she can't do them herself, of course she can, but that it's just, it's, it's easier, it's nicer to have those done for you sometimes. Um, so you, to your point, all that is, is my own perception on it though. And I can ask people questions more, more often.
to get their feedback. Yeah, and then I, I think potentially a more important question is what do you think? So, okay, so let me ask this question first to give me some, some context. Mm-hmm. With you tracking your first year of attention, is your goal now to help other people duplicate what you've done and provide more context and tools for them? Or is your goal currently to fine tune, hone in and experiment more? Because it's, it's gonna be challenging to deploy both at the same time. Yeah, well, so the short answer is both and I recognize it's hard. And so I hope to at least do one of the two justice, ideally both, but ideally, hopefully not neither. Um, I don't expect that what I do and, and the tools I have put into my life and the habits I've tried to put into my life, that those are appropriate for everyone and that everyone will want to do that. Uh, and so I, I don't presume that. Um, for those who are interested in knowing themselves a little bit more deeply, one of the best ways to do it, obviously, is audit our time. Um, I think you can learn a lot about yourself about, about reflecting on that information. So part of it is continuing to do this so that I am so well-versed in the basics such that when people are interested to whatever degree they're interested, right, that I can uh, help them using some of the best practices uh, that I've found so far, some of the more effective tools, uh, obviously comparing that with their personal st- um, you know, learning styles and their personal uh, pr- preferences for how that is they work. Uh, you know, people can, can be just as intentional when living in a principled way. They don't need to necessarily schedule things or track things to this level of detail. But frankly, I think that's where, for me anyways, there, there lies a lot of opportunity. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for others too. Um, so it's really just a question of what people feel is the, the right distance to go for, for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, but simultaneously, if, if the attention economy will be as large of a threat as I hope it is not. <laughs> um, but, but I think that it will be. Then we need to be extremely good. I think we need to be extremely good at knowing what we care about, defining what we value, knowing what activities we want to spend our time and attention on, for recognizing when things are irrelevant, for practicing being mindful and conscious of the times that we switch to something or something grabs our attention to navigate it back, you know, to correct course. Um, I think these are going to need to be fundamental skills given a mounting threat against it. Um, And so to a degree, I feel like I need to push the envelope to figure out how, how good is it possible for someone to get is it possible for us to do this strictly biologically? Uh, do we do we need technological assistance to um, to combat the attention economy and its personal effect on us or its organizational effect on us? Um, I am of the mind that technologies, if customized to our own um, you know, values, right? If we, we have that set first and then we grab the right technologies to help us 
I think they can be extremely powerful and undoubtedly they can help. But I, part of the question I want to ask is, do we need them to support us? I think the answer may be yes, but I want to try to see how, how good we can get uh, just biologically. So, um, and so I, I kind of need to do both, right? I need to get really good at the basics to support other people. Um, but I equally need to explore, explore uh, mastery. Right. So with your current data points and your current knowledge base, what's more valuable to you reaching more people or deeply impacting a smaller group of people to maximum fulfillment? Honestly, the latter. And the reason is this. Um, so I don't know if you know about this, but I choose not to spend any money on yes. any form of marketing because it contributes to the attention economy. I am trying to help people mm-hmm. avoid, right? Or, or, or um, and that, which contributes to the regret, right? That I'm trying to solve. So strategically, what I'm you know, trying to do is grow a slow and steady brand with extremely strong word of mouth by helping people make transformative changes in their life with skills and tools that they can, t- can continue to use on their own mm-hmm. without my support, right, for the rest of their lives and be far better off, save the equivalent of right. years in their life. Um, I believe that as I have a slow but steady, deep transformative impact on select clients, that that is the type of experience that they will remember most. That is the type of experience that they will feel compelled to share. And in time, it will grow. Um, My concern, I think, about is that if I try to scale too quickly, if I try to support people, uh, and obviously this is a bit binary here, but if I try to support people very broadly, um, you know, it's possible that they don't observe all of the benefits that the changes related to this that are best for them, you know, can have, uh, that it, it doesn't end up necessarily going anywhere and I don't end up having very deep impact. And, uh, you know, by that point, the problem gets so bad that I don't have a referral base. So I have lots of thoughts on this. Um, so flat one, and I think this is the question that I was trying to ask, but I didn't know how to articulate it. So when it comes to, uh, general health and fitness, there are things and steps you can take that will get you from like, say 40% body fat to 15% body fat and a reasonable amount of mobility and activity level. Um, that for most people will be extremely transformative and dramatic. Like they'll be able to go upstairs for the first time without getting winded. They'll be able to do things like cut their grass and not be in pain. And that in itself is enough to change somebody's life to where going from like say that 15% body fat to having visible six pack or eight pack, the increased effort and time required to get to those results are not worth it to most people 
nor do they find value in actually being able to participate in the few people that say have a six pack. So I feel like understanding who it is you're trying to help most and where your impact lies um, and creating almost a separate program and learning to serve the groups of people that bring you the most value for serving them um, should be primary focus and then developing tools and resources, although they might be valuable to you, won't be valuable to your target group that bring you the most value and most fulfillment in helping. Yep. Um, Cause like if, if you want to help the most people possible feel we'll say 80% more fulfilled and they get to that 80% mark, 15% mm-hmm. body fat in comparison to fulfillment and they're, they're, they're good. They're good. You know, yeah. that's a completely different process than taking people who are at the 80% and want to get to 95. And no matter what you want yep. to do, completely agree. Um, you and I have talked a lot about directionally correct. I have also mm-hmm. learned that being directionally correct is potentially a trap because there's only so much bandwidth a singular person can use. Um, so until you develop tools and resources to multiply, multiply your efforts or bring on team members or things of that nature, um, directionally correct doesn't actually matter. You have to be more focused. And that's something that's been challenging for myself because I like to be working on things that are important to me, but also uh, you know, helping others or developing things that could help me five years down the road, but they don't actually get me to where I want to be tomorrow. And kind of understanding what is your target for like, say the next quarter of the year? What is your primary focus? Is it to help or engage with two to five more people that you can take from zero to 80% fulfillment? Or is it to take a couple of your people who are already clients and initiated with your program and go from 80% fulfillment to 95% fulfillment? Do people actually want to be 95% fulfilled and are they interested in doing the additional tracking and things that they want? And then two, um, that kind of changes your deployment strategy because then it's a difference between are you trying to target people before they get to the age of regret where they might not have context and may not listen to what you have to say early on but at least you planted that seed so that way they can be there later. And when they do start feeling things like regret or the lack of fulfillment, there's a potential that they'll remember, you know, your brand, your products, your processes. Or do you want to focus on people who are already feeling regret and completely, you know, change those lives as quickly as possible? And I think each variation changes not only the deployment strategy, but what you should be focusing on next. Yeah, no, I, I think those are all those points are very well considered. Um, so to answer your question, I mean, the main thing I'm looking to maximize is the number of years, let's say that I can save okay. in other people's lives. And that can be a combination of, you know, the deep work with a couple of individuals or broad work with many. Now, 
absolutely from like an 80-20 rule standpoint, there is a lot of value to be had, I think, in other people's lives who are maybe unaware of some of these uh, approaches or, or nobody has ever told them that what they value matters. <laughs> They've never really reflected on it and they can, they can have massive gains even getting to that 80%, um, you know, level, whatever, however you want to think of that. So I think it is my best course of action is probably creating some broader uh, content that can work at scale, you know, whether that's a course, whether that is, um, whether that's free content or something to that effect that helps people get, you know, it helps everyone, you know, get to uh, this level where they're being far more intentional with their time. They know what they value um, and that that creates a lot of value for them. Um, In doing that, hopefully I can still get feedback from them as to how much time they believe that will have saved them in their life, uh, which is inherently fulfilling to me, but also this gives, uh, this is a practical way, I think, for me to create or give value uh, that builds brand, that builds trust, that uh, can be the beginning of the conversation or rather an icebreaker for those who have done that and want to go deeper, right? Who have latched onto it and are extremely enthused about it. Maybe at that point, right? Those are the clients that I, you know, I serve on, I guess, at a deeper level. Um, so that may be one way that I need to, I think that's something I need to do. I think I need to look into scaling the basics now that I have the basics down and I have some uh, evergreen content uh, that, you know, that can work uh, uh, in that respect. And I think after trying that for a while and serving some individuals for, for, for a while, I will learn more that will inform what market segments I focus on next, despite genuinely believing I can serve any part of the market, um, but you know which part of the market is ready to consider these these ideas or messages or processes next. Um, to your point, right? Some of the older people have experienced regret, and so you don't need to convince them it's a problem, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you just help them with the balance of their lives. Uh, others, there's much more opportunity to help in the sense that they've got a, a, a lot longer to live. There's much greater upside to establishing these habits early but they still need to be convinced of the problem because they think they've got lots of time and they haven't felt the pain of regret yet because they've been able to make up for, for most well, missteps. So um, I was going to say there's, <laughs> there's a lot of ways to think about this. Um, and this is where I think you may have to you may have to ask yourself again, the same questions that you would ask your clients. And that is, what do you value? Because if ever a point I've experienced a lack of direction on what's next, it's because my own values or my own standards in the current moment weren't defined detailed enough based on the new context acquired by my experiences. So what I valued five years ago is going to be different than what I valued today. Um, So 
whenever I'm unsure on what next step should be, it's normally because I haven't taken the time to go back and say, okay, well, what do I value most right now? And, you know, kind of go through the five why analysis of those things to hone into what's actually most important. And a lot of times I've found that for myself, that really hones in what the next step should be. Not saying that that's necessarily what you have to do, but that might be the next starting point. Um, and really, if you think of your process, one, I don't support the concept of not marketing. Um, that's, that can be a conversation for another day or we can have that conversation today. But I feel like mm -hmm. if you have a product or service that's going to add dramatic value to people's lives, the sooner you can get it in front of them, the better. Because the sooner you can reduce the suffering, you should. And their attention is going to be consumed by something. Um, so if you can start the pattern interrupt today, that's better than in five weeks waiting for somebody else to tell them about it. But also going back to kind of what you were saying with, you know, finding different um, age groups or experience points. One thing I found really interesting when working with Amazon was they are trying to focus on college students today to get their attention. So that way, when those college students have children, their children don't know what a Walmart is. Well, with technologies and things like you're using, you could actually create, say, a children's cartoon that's, you know, animated, that teaches these principles and distribute it on, you know, a Netflix, an Amazon Prime, a YouTube Kids, and create the concepts before the regret happens. Um, because we've seen, you know, teenage suicide is through the roof, especially in the United States. I don't know about other countries. I live in the United States. That's what I'm experienced with. Um, it's insane. So we know that teenagers are suffering and they feel regret and they don't have tools and resources to help them deal with that. Um, and then, like you said, there's also people, you know, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s who are already experiencing regret. You don't have to convince them. So, you know, prevention versus, uh, I don't know what the proper term would be, but kind of fixing them after the fact is two completely different strategies. And I think as much as you want to do it all, it goes back to a lot of conversations you and I had. You really have to pick those, what are the, you know, two to three, potentially one thing that is going to be the primary focus for the next sprint and then execute that out if it yields the results you're looking for, then figure out, is it something you should do again? Or is it something you should alter because the results weren't what you hoped? Right. Yep, no, I, I agree with you. I mean, it is kind of a matter of prioritizing and these this last year or two has been partly about putting content and ideas out there in, in different ways uh, to see what resonated mm -hmm. and with whom, right? Uh, in a way that told me what market segments would be, I guess, to best to next mm -hmm. approach. Um, you know, you asked the question of what is it that I value? And I answered the question a little bit differently than some of my clients choose to answer it. I answered it in the content or in the form of who mm -hmm. do I value? Um, I sort of see how I see how it is we feel 
now others feel as the end game. And the question then became, well, for whom am I trying mm -hmm. to create joy? Right? Uh, whose regret am I trying to solve or reduce or eliminate? Right? And so I really broke down for like 100% who, like how much do I value myself? How much do I value my wife? How much do I value my kids? Um, my extended family, my acquaintances, my contacts, and then the general public, right? And so I've got this, I think I threw it up on Instagram. Um, and maybe one of the things I can do is reflect on how I've spent my, I guess what I've spent my attention on in this last year. And I guess before doing that, the different activities I'm doing, how have those served, right? These different groups of people that I care about and kind of get a sense of, you know, are there groups of people that I care about that, uh, you know, where mm -hmm. I don't have the right balance, right? Where they've, they've received not enough of my attention based on what I value or um, more than, more than I value. Um, so I think in doing that as well, it'll help me refine the balance that I've got. But this, yeah, right now the general public or earth as I have it in the way that I've split out who I value. Um, maybe I need to split that out a little bit further, right? Into possibly different market segments. Um, or for now, right, that can be starting with this this portion. Of yeah, because when it comes to attention and building brand uh, you either get attention by creating content that other people share with others which is a very uncontrollable way to do it so you know it's very unpredictable you don't know what's going to happen you don't know who's how it's going to resonate with people and you don't necessarily know even if it resonates is the person comfortable sharing or confident sharing um, but distribution of content is one way to grow. Paying to get the attention is the other way to grow. Obviously paying can be much quicker mm -hmm. if you know proper marketing techniques to attract the people that you're looking for. The issue lies in the more content you create and distribute, the less time, which I'm sure you understand with all your tracking, you have to develop tools, resources, and potentially engage in other things. And I've experienced this dramatically the last six weeks with, I attempted to record a daily video for Instagram of me preparing for my first cycling race. And the more time I spent thinking about getting up the camera, recording it and editing it, the less I actually did to prepare for the race because there was only so much, like yep. you're talking about attention to go around. Um, so deciding, you know, what's next for you and what's the most important short-term goal, um, will really change, you know, how you, how you participate in this. If I was to kind of look at your brand and your business a little bit from afar, one of the things that I've seen successful in the past that I think could be highly valuable for people is if you created baseline tools and resources that were free and self-engaging for people to say, go from current fulfillment to an increase, you know, 
into, you know, say, say we're talking about 100% fulfilled to 0% fulfilled. These mm-hmm. quick, easy, well, not necessarily quick, but these easy to self-apply and self-prescribe tools and resources consistently take people from like, say, zero up to the 65% range. So that way, people who are very interested in what you have to do, that are willing to self-prescribe and self-pay attention and actually track everything accordingly, they can do so and input the data into a collection point. So that way you can see over a vast majority of people how different techniques are working and what things people are interested in changing themselves. And then one, you Mm -hmm. have a target group for people who would be interested in going from 60% fulfilled to 90% fulfilled, or they're interested in saving an extra two years um, of attention on their life versus trying to decide in an instant interaction, what program would you be interested in or what tools and resources do I need to develop? You might be able to find, you know, over the course of the next couple of years, people are willing to self-prescribe and um, self-regulate and create themselves accountable for so much of their fulfillment. And then everything else is more of a a one-on-one interaction or some sort of detailed accountability or refining and uh, giving people the ability to, like I said, kind of self-medicate with tools and resources that you developed. So that way you can affect more people more quickly and collect data um, and then really devote your time and attention to developing the skills and resources to take people from that, you know, the 60 to 80 to that hundred percent range. It's kind of how I think about it, but it happens in phases, right? Like you would have to develop those technologies, those resources, those databases for people to plug into, which means you wouldn't necessarily be able to spend the time to do the detailed work for yourself today. Yeah, for sure. I, I think the next step then from from a growth perspective is in creating some of these free resources with processes that uh, people can use to, or that they can follow uh, to define individually what it is they care about and and make some of the plans and changes themselves. Um, You know, obviously that can scale well, it's a good free resource, um, so on and so forth. It's a good way to to create and give value. from a content creation standpoint, I think I need to get more comfortable with raw. I think I need to uh, share my thoughts and activities as I do it, uh, just so that it doesn't take up a significant portion of my, um, you know, of, of my time just creating the content or polishing it. Obviously, there will be certain pieces that that are, you know, meant mm-hmm. to be evergreen, right? But stuff that is more topical is, I think, it's fine for it to be raw. I need you know, possibly use stories a little bit more and the like. And I think in doing that and showing one of the, some of the stuff that I am working on, right. That that can, you know, inspire people to, to try a version of that can inspire people to try some of it. Right. And um, I think I just need to show it possibly in action more and, you know, reflect publicly perhaps on how I'm feeling about certain things and, and why. And, uh, you know, that'll help, I think, increase the the relationship I have with, you know, the, the average person. Um, and 
you know, start to grow the trust. Yeah, and like if you look at sports, for example, NBA players from an endorsement deal and soccer players from an endorsement are much more valuable than mm-hmm. somebody in the NFL because you can see their face, you can see their expressions, you can see them suffer when they're you know running hard, you can see the sweat running off their face. Where in American football, yep. there's a helmet covering their face, so it's very disconnected. And uh, like you were saying, exposing yourself more as an individual creates trust within a brand and it allows people to see you know yep. behind the scenes and i think that's really what us being smaller brands have to do uh, not only for longevity because it it allows people to see the process and the growth but it's because it's something that you know coca-cola can't necessarily do uh, what are they going to do show the vp um or the employee on the warehouse floor like it's not as impactful for large fortune 100 and 500 companies to do things like that so leveraging what you do have at your disposal definitely this has been good there's a lot to think about um i think i have some next steps for how i should continue to grow uh, and the type of content that I regularly mm-hmm. put out, um, which is, again is more documenting. Um, after I finish up some of the polished uh, series that I've started, I, I kind of want to bring some closure to those. Then that can be possibly a natural transition. And then from a, a personal standpoint, I think I want to switch to measuring my active attention, right? My, my micro attention more mm-hmm. than my macro and recognize a, that yes, that's going to be harder, but because that's where I believe the opportunity lies, I strongly believe in the benefit being worth that effort. Right, and if not, I mean it's an experiment, and it maybe helps me find where a good natural balance point is. But I still believe it will have net upside, but I won't know until I yeah. try. And kind of like being a part of this right. journey, um, you know, on and off with you since you we met over two years ago, almost three years ago now. Um, I think going into the the quant or the qualitative side of things and allowing people to see what some of these things actually mean to you and how they've affected you on the emotional standpoint and the feeling standpoint yeah. will be highly impactful um, because emotions is something people can, they can relate to, right? Like they're struggling with the same things where when you're throwing out analytics, precisely, yeah. a lot of people might not necessarily understand what those mean. And sure, and it, it doesn't it, it doesn't make it doesn't convey the emotions in the same way. And of course, you know, I, I feel every emotion everyone else does, and I'm comfortable in my own skin, so happy to to show that mm-hmm. vulnerability. Um, I think it's just a matter of yeah. doing it now, right? Um, so yeah, I appreciate your your moral support in in that change of direction, um, or at least incorporating it as one of the balanced pieces of content I put out there, right? 
uh, here's Alan sharing how his day went and why and what frustrated him and the like, what he's afraid of, um, as well as here are some of the things I've worked on long enough to feel more confident in. And I think it would be useful. Yeah, right? and... um, I think hopefully in mixing it up, right, people will find some content of what I share worth following for. And then, um, you know, yeah, just trying to cater to different parts of the market to see who who's getting the most value. I out think of it. the important thing too also is remember you don't necessarily have to distribute everything right now, but you do have to document it because the moment only exists in this moment. And once it passes, it's in hindsight and it loses its purity. So even if you decide for the next four months you're gonna document these emotions and a little bit more raw, you don't necessarily have to distribute today. You can wait until yep. you're at a point in your process where you can allocate time to, you know, whether it's video editing or content curating or whatever it is, as long as you doc document things today so that way they're there for you in the future. Um, and then one thing too, I haven't spent too much time consuming a lot of your content because I haven't been really paying attention to a lot of people's things as of recently. Uh, making sure not only are you educating people on how to do things according to your system, but what it looks like when they're doing it wrong. Because I know one thing that I always do for myself in self-learning is I'll overcorrect a behavior or a process to the point of dysfunction so that way I can see what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of times we think we're being productive, mm -hmm. but we're really just being busy. Or we think we're doing something really well because this is new to us and it's, you know, it, we, don't, we don't know what we don't know yet. So under, having technologies or informations that show people this is what it looks like when it's done incorrectly can immediately allow people to self-troubleshoot and need less hands-on coaching. And I think that's something that most people in most markets when distributing information are not good at yet. Uh, a lot of people are great at telling you what to do, but not a lot of people tell you what it looks like when you feel like you're doing it correctly, but you're actually in a compromised either position or procedure. Yeah, that makes sense. And maybe I'm trying to do these different things together as I measure my micro attention, right? Which I think will be yep. different, right? Than, than the macro attention so far. Uh, I will start to observe that happening in my own life. Right where maybe certain behaviors or patterns I've got are they correlate well or they cause the you know me being more productive or more effective or spending more time on these other micro attention activities that are uh, yep. you know valuable versus you know which days have I not been as productive as I would have liked and what were some of the patterns that got me into that yep. last productive day. Right. Um, and so, yeah, showing people, I guess, you know, on, on this particular day, I didn't really set my day up particularly well. And as a result, you know, I, I got less done than I had wanted to. Um, and I, the reason I didn't set my day up particularly well is because I actually spent a disproportionate amount of time doing this, which at the time seemed right, but when reflecting on it, it, it isn't. And so, 
you know, do these things in moderation and, you know, you kind of find whatever balance is right for yourself. And I'm, I'm hopefully going to be able to make those points during, like through the story of how it is happening for me. Um, and people will find different balances that are right for them, so on and so forth. But, but this idea that there is a balance, that there is overkill, that there is, you know, we do think of, think about whether they're like the switching costs are too administratively burdensome um, or, um, I guess, am I learning enough from what I'm tracking that it is ultimately making a, a net difference? Or is it, um, you know, just measuring stuff for the sake of measuring it? Yeah, and one thing that I want to kind of ask um, selfishly, because it's something I've been kind of noticing for myself. Um, I consider myself to be a very um, emotional person. I'm definitely driven through emotion more True. than analytics. And... I'm somebody who, I guess the best way I can think of saying it is I have a tendency to have my attention elsewhere or be able to do things subconsciously while my activity is, you know, I could be doing the dishes, but I could be solving higher level problems or something going on in my head, right? Right. Um, right. And I'm good at doing that. One thing that I've noticed for myself mm -hmm is residual cost of attention and what i mean by that is because i'm so emotional when i do actively do a task uh, that's important to me or that moves me emotionally my attention seems to have a hard time getting away from that whether it's watching a movie or a tv show that i'm you know vested in the characters mm -hmm. you know i might turn off the tv sure. but then when i go to bed for the first 30 minutes to an hour of me laying there in bed, my mind's playing through, you know, either scenes of the movie or some sort of correlation to life or whatever it may be yep. and ends up having, you know, that long-term effect. A great example I can think of is people when they leave work, they're frustrated with what happened at work, they come home and, you know, they might be off the clock for an hour and a half, but they haven't let work go. So there's that residual cost of attention. Um, how much have you seen that in your works? And how has there ever, like, I guess the first question is, how have you seen that in, in your works? Yeah, so it's really interesting you should bring that up. It's extremely timely. Uh, my wife and I just finished watching last of the orange okay. is the new black season um and this is one of the ways i spend time with my wife is you know we will we'll watch a show together it, the series changes so on and so forth depending on what it is and it's not always that sometimes we're doing other things um you know talking about our kids showing pictures that kind of stuff telling each other about our day but i i do find that <laughs> afterwards right um because those those stories mm -hmm. are well written right uh, I, I tend to continue thinking about the characters, even though that story or the lessons or the morals don't really have much of an impact in my own life. They're not relevant. It's hard to distance ourselves from that which has been emotionally gripping, bad or good, uh, simply because we remember how we feel and not necessarily what we see or experience, um, mm -hmm. you know, per se, just uh, you know, rationally. So one of the benefits that I see of going to micro attention again is that it is less about 
what we are hearing at the, at the given moment. It is less about what we are seeing in the given moment. It is less about what we are touching or manipulating at a given moment. It is more about what we are thinking, mm-hmm. right? And if we are doing a particular activity and it does have our full attention, all that means is that we're thinking yeah. about it, right? And so from that perspective, and I appreciate you bringing up this question because I'm starting to get more clear on what micro-attention will mean for me and how I'm going to define it. It's what am I thinking about at any given time? Um, when I'm able, almost from a, a meta perspective, think about what I'm thinking about or pay attention to what has my attention, right? Then I'll be able to figure out why these less than relevant things are currently occupying my mm-hmm. my mind um, and start to move myself away from those triggers, remove those triggers from my life, uh, if in fact they aren't relevant. Yeah, one of the main reasons why I bring this up for myself um, is one thing I really enjoy is video games, especially strategy games against other human beings. I don't really like jerk playing computers um, against AI. Yep. And the way I use them is I use them for a short window feedback loop for me to execute strategies and principles that I'm trying to apply in my own life. Um, So like this new craze, auto chess, there's specific things that make you successful at the game and there's specific things that don't. And in a 40 minute match, I can analyze my actions in the game and see how in that really short frame feedback loop, my behavior is today. And if I notice there's a, a strategy that you have to execute on patience and timeliness, um, and I continue to lose because I'm not executing on that strategy, there's a very good possibility that my diet's off that week as well because it's, it's manifesting the lack of discipline. Um, and as much as I enjoy playing those things, as much as I can use them for tools, because I get so emotionally invested in the strategy, um, it's definitely not something I can do before bed because I tend to be a very lucid or at least aware person when I sleep and have very vivid thoughts and pictures and everything going through my mind while I'm sleeping. And a lot of times I can grasp control of those and have conversation through lucid dreaming, but sometimes I can't. And I'll notice, you know, if I play, say, a video game an hour before bed, my first two hours of sleep is spent replaying some of those matches going through certain strategies and things that might not necessarily be value added to where if before I go to bed I watch cycling videos because that's my current passion um, I can develop those mm-hmm. skills and uh, just kind of pay attention to the residual effects so like another thing that I've noticed is there's a lot of podcasts I really enjoy for the way they make me think but I get so emotionally invested in the topic or the concepts of deep thought that I'm wrecked mentally for the rest of the day. They exhaust me energetically and I will have zero problem solving ability (laughs) for the remainder of the day, which means Mm -hmm. I need to manage, like you were saying, what activities engage my thoughts and why and avoiding certain triggers based on outcomes that I have that are desirable or not. Yeah. Like, like today, today is a particularly important day. I need to get these other things done knowing that, this particular podcast presenter or the topic that's at hand is, you know, from past experience, likely to grip me emotionally, likely to really get me thinking. Uh, it is likely going to drain me uh, from doing what it is I also value today. Um, 
you know, possibly I listen to it as a reward for accomplishing these things as opposed to doing it in advance and risking the accomplishment mm-hmm. of those things. Um, you know, and, and we're, and we're all different, right? Different things have different yep. triggers for us. And so it's, like, I think it's amazing that you were able to recognize that in yourself and, and start to make adjustments. Um, very few of us, I believe, are that self-aware, but it's, it's something that is so worthwhile, right, is to, is to do that reflection, however it is we do it, on wh- whichever activities we do it. Um, so, so for me, I, I think it, you know, there are going to be specific examples, right, that come from uh, measuring my micro attention, measuring what it is, or, or tracking what it is that I am thinking about at any given time. Uh, and what I think that will also do is it will help me remember some of the other productive things I could think about instead, right? So if I notice myself continuing to dwell on a particular plot within a show that my wife and I have watched together, you know, that our time together is, is uh, done for the moment, right? Uh, or our time spent together is done for the moment. And we, you know, I'm, I'm moving on to other things that matter to me. What else could I be thinking about in place of this thing? Right? I, I, I want to continue to develop, I guess, a more robust or formal set of default things that are worthwhile mm-hmm. thinking about. So that if I recognize something that is not valuable to me, that I can quickly remind myself what are some alternative things I could focus on right and I think there's, there's a lot of power in having a default set up in advance both in terms of engaging in it in it from you know, in the first place right just because you know it's there and it's worthwhile to giving yourself the permission to switch to it when there is, I guess, when the other thing and things in front of you to start. Well, I think it becomes fascinating too, because then you almost create a playbook based on desirable outcomes and actions that you know you have to take. And you can say, okay, I know for this week, my week is the problems that I have that I'm solving are very high level thinking, which means I need to avoid these tasks and use this default layout for how I spend my time, because this layout prevents these triggers or these distractions. Or if you know you're going to be having a more uh, a week where you're doing less high-level thinking and you're doing more hands-on, whether it's distributing more content or whether it's um, you know things of that nature, you can pull a different page out of the playbook and use a different template to become more successful during those activities. Or like if you know if you're going on vacation, there might be certain triggers that allow you to shut off the problem-solving part of your mind that's going to be thinking about your business and use that template and kind of rigging the game yeah. in your favor based on the desired outcome. I like the idea of templates, right? It's not like setting up our day in sort of morning routine. Yeah, I've... Necessarily needs to be the same in, in you know, every Absolutely. single day. But, you know, it, are there different routines that get us, get us into different head spaces that are useful for different outcomes, right? Um, so... Yeah, that's something I've not paid a lot of attention to yet is <laughs> part of it is waking up with my kids and having to deal with their needs. And so um, finding a consistent morning routine has been impossible um, or not. It's been extremely difficult, I think, for me so far. But what 
yeah, I think what I do need to do is recognize what headspace I'm in as a result of however the morning went, whether I was able to design that or whether it was more reactive and and make what changes I can, right? Some of them are going to be more, more Well, I know for myself, and there's going to be a lot of people who think, you know, this is a, a cop-out, but for me, the morning routine as it exists as... I wake up at a specific time and by different timestamps, I've completed certain tasks is very, Mm -hmm. it's not very valuable for me at all because my mornings do vary so much. What I found more, very more valuable is understanding which tasks are most important based on what it is I'm trying to accomplish that day and do things in a certain sequence, which I guess is designing my triggers. I didn't realize that's what I was doing until we started talking about this to put me in the proper state or momentum to move in and out of different tasks. So I know if I wake up 30 minutes late, the thing that's my most important thing to do by noon is X. Well, in order to be in the best state to complete X, these are the two tasks I need to do. And I can cut these other five things that would have been nice to get done as part of my morning routine out to prepare for that one task. But if I don't, if I don't understand the template and what its purpose is, I don't know which things to cut when, or, you know, that sometimes the sequencing is more important than the actual, uh, the timeliness of it. Because that's how it's been for myself. Yeah, I, I agree. And I don't think that's a cop-out at all. I mean, the, the point of a routine, right, is to get us into this optimal headspace or state, whatever you want to call it, yep. right, for our day. And... Um, there's nothing necessarily saying that different things need to be accomplished or there's no uh, logical argument I can think of or, or supported argument I can think of why getting everything done within a certain period of time or the same things done within a certain period of time is necessary to get us into that space, to right. get us into that state, right? Uh, it is, I think, more about I think you, you could kind of just gone straight to the heart of the matter. And it is about what do we need to do in advance, right? To, to have the right energy, to have the right mindset, to reduce distractions, to have the right tools, all the kind of stuff uh, available for those next activities, right? And is it working, right? It, it, it's an iterative, dynamic um, mm-hmm. routine. Right, that you're changing based on what it is you're looking to accomplish, as opposed to what I would believe would be falsely presuming that a static routine or or a single routine would necessarily put you in the best state for anything you would then want to do that day. Yeah, no, I agree. And the way that's kind of changed for me quite a bit is I used to be into bodybuilding and over the last six to eight weeks of transition into cycling racing. And when I was in the bodybuilding and that was my primary focus when training, I had a very specific routine that I used to put myself into the proper headspace to go into my workout and perform a certain way. Um, because when you get on stage, yeah. it's a very controlled environment. There's not a lot of things that once you get to the point of getting on stage that can alter outcomes. To where in racing, there's a thousand things that can happen that are going to change the outcome um, on the actual race day. So 
training for cycling races, I've actually eliminated any type of routine or process to generate a mindset or headspace going into a workout. So that way I'm comfortable with things being different all the time. Cause you don't know if you're going to show up for the cycling race and like that. maybe your shoes aren't laced the certain way you want, or maybe your tires, you know, 10% lower, or maybe it's raining, maybe it's not raining. Um, you know, yep. there's maybe you didn't go to the bathroom before you got on the bike. Like there's a thousand things that are outside of your control. So I try to, even though yep. it could hurt my workout and I might not be as productive in my workout, it prepares me for the actual end goal better than where, like I said, getting on stage is pretty, it's once you're at that point, it's a pretty controlled environment. So the, having those controls in place for the workouts, um, it's, it's just different. And understanding that when you, at least for myself, understanding what the desired outcome is and kind of hedging against worst case scenario, if the outcome is that valuable, um, is, yep. has been quite helpful. Yeah, I, I really like that. Yeah. In in your case or in your example, it's you know really embracing how adaptable you can be as a human being by making sure your body remembers how to be adaptable because it has been forced to adapt to all these different um, contexts and situations. And a real life example too Reality. is on race day, um, July twenty first, my first race. I lost my wallet thirty minutes before start time. Couldn't find it, and immediately yep. you know i spent 30 seconds looking for it in the most obvious locations and i stopped looking for it and people are like hey i heard you lost your wallet did you find it i'm like no I'm like oh well, why aren't you looking for it it's like because i'm about to do a race whether or not i have my wallet yep. does not actually affect the race so it's not something i can be thinking about getting on the bike because if i'm getting on the bike getting ready to you know pedal at a certain level of discomfort and physical exertion thinking about things that don't exist in that moment on the road on my bike is not going to benefit my outcome. So, you know, I quickly recognize yeah. the situation, let go of the thoughts and problems that didn't affect my current um, focus, you know, going back to what you're talking about and diverted my attention to the most important task at hand, because I understood, you know, having my wallet doesn't change my ability to race. It's a problem I can solve after this event takes place. And I was able to quickly make that yeah, switch. Given that it's not in the obvious places. Yeah. I, I love that. Oh, that's a great, that's a great so. example. So, yeah, no, this has been really helpful. Um, I think it's, it's hard to know exactly where all of this will go, right? If not impossible to know where all of this will go. All I can really decide are what I will try next. Right. And then rinse, repeat, learn from it. Um, and hopefully share what it is that I'm trying through well, this podcast and, and through other uh, ways of documenting what I'm doing so that I can you know, credibly say, well, you know, this strategy, which I referred to back, you know, two months ago has yielded this outcome. Here's what I've learned. I'm going to try this now. And you know, I think in that there will be better self-education on my part, but hopefully those lessons, assuming they are relevant or transferable to other people, will be relevant, you know, will be valuable for them. When too. analyzing desirable outcomes, do you set 
annual goals, quarterly goals, monthly goals, weekly goals to have milestones and direction? Or how are you organizing um, your intentionality in that way? Yeah, so it's interesting, right? The, the only thing that matters to me is how much time I have been worth to other people in their lives. And that drives every other behavior. Now, are you, do you have like a target worth that you try to add every so often, or is it just kind of accept what's given? I I don't have a quota. I don't have a quota because um, I think that actually creates the wrong incentives. Um, So what I try to do is I try to, keep my end goal right or or i guess the process of reaching it in the Mm -hmm. forefront of my mind that everything i want to do i want for that to support the goal and because i can't control necessarily who is you know seeking a conversation with me at any given moment because i can't control how much value they believe um, I've cre- helped them create in their own lives. It, it's not useful, I think, or productive to set a, a quota or to set a, you know, a, a target, right, for those things that are outside of my control. I can control my behaviors, mm-hmm. and really that's it, right? Um, in terms of the right ratio of behaviors. That's something I think I need to do a little bit of math on now that I have enough data, right? Have I spent, have I spent enough time on each of the different facets of what I believe will drive that result best? Or do I need to do a little bit more of this and a little bit less of that, mm-hmm. right? Which of these behaviors tends to have, um, yielded the greatest impact on that number um recognizing some of them are going to be short-term plays and some of them are going to be long-term plays as well Uh, a lot of the brand development stuff doesn't yield short-term results and yet i know it's incredibly important and so i do it anyways Uh, same things with you know with the relationship i have with my wife the relationship i have with my friends with my with my kids right Uh, i aim to be worth their time Right? Like I want my kids to later on as adults be thankful that they had a dad, right? To be, to, you know, to, you know, if I'm, you know, if I'm, you know, guiding them, let's say largely in the first 18 years of their life. Um, and then obviously maybe a little bit after that, but that's kind of up to them, you know, have, are they as happy at 18 with where they're at? Right. Because of, how well they know themselves, what they know they're interested in, um, their direction, so on and so forth, the, the love that they have for each other and, and our family, um, as they as they could be, as would be reasonable, right? That, that kind of thing. Can I can I create more than 18 years worth of value in their lives before they're 18? Yeah, and you're kind of touching on a very right. uh, an interesting conversion or convergence of uh, of information because. 
ultimately your impact on people will increase not only by the amount of time and regret that you help them reduce, but also by a force multiplier would be how much do they value their own time and how much self-awareness do they have so that way they can properly allocate the value that they've received. Because if you can have somebody who finds themselves very invaluable or somebody who say doesn't value themselves at all and they don't think they can contribute a lot, you can increase uh, you know, how much time they've saved and regret they've saved by just helping them feel valuable and that they can contribute and they have something to offer. And that becomes a balancing point of right. how much gasoline are you using to kindling to build a fire and then sustain the fire afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I do try to stay away from some of the motivational stuff, even though like that is never the, the first intent, but some of it end, you know, can end up being somewhat motivational, right? Helping people recognize not just that they're valuable, you know, yes, I, I do believe we are all valuable by default and I have some really solid argument for that, but it's far more convincing if it's specific to their skill set, if it's specific to their interests, it's like, well, you know, you're really good at this and you seem to enjoy it. And I know there are a ton of people that would benefit from it. I know people that would benefit from it. Let me mm -hmm. connect you with them, right? It starts to help people um, realize that their life has more purpose than perhaps they'd given it credit for um, or that they, they give themselves credit for. Um, so you're right. Some of it is mindset. Some of it is, is more yeah. objective, right? Well, you know, I'm, I'm now I'm not spending three hours a day doing this. And when I really didn't value it, I'm saving a ton more time. So um, yeah, how it is that we create value in other people's lives can differ. Um, but it's really that single metric that drives all of my behaviors. And I just need to reflect, I think iteratively, because it'll change too, uh, which behaviors are uh, having the greatest impact. Am I engaging in some of these behaviors and they're valuable, but technically I should be, have I been using them as crutches? Have I, I been using those as distractions, even though they're valuable, right? To not do the ones that I feel less comfortable with, but that I know would be more valuable. And can I, can I get myself comfortable being uncomfortable? Yeah, unfortunately, value and impact aren't directly um, correlated, I think right? It, <laughs> no, 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 exactly, right? Um, so that's really where I'm, I'm, I think looking to go next is, is to compare what have been some of the most value added behaviors or focuses I've had. Am I doing enough of those activities? Am I spending enough attention on it? Am I thinking about those enough? Um, what are the, what are the top two or three things that, are always valuable to think of and I can afford to think about them for one or two minutes at a time. And then that's still you know, productive. Those are the things, the defaults that I want to be able to regularly switch into when I'm noticing my mind wandering uh, into something that is less relevant and is effectively wasting time. Right. Um, I think if we summed up the minutes in our day, when there was opportunity, uh, we'd be very surprised at, you know, how much that really, uh, is and I don't look at that as a negative thing so much right oh I wasted so much time because there are minutes here minutes there and they sum up to the equivalent of an hour and a half 
I look at that as an opportunity. I have an extra hour and a half that I didn't even know I had when I was focusing on macro attention, right? Like that is awesome. I'm going for it, right? Uh, so that, that's kind of where that's kind of where I see things going next. Um, just trying to control my not control my behaviors, but be conscious about which behaviors are most effective and doing them regardless of whether they're comfortable. I'm very curious to see what types of things you come up with after this conversation. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I really, really appreciate your your questions and your insights and your experiences because, A, I've always valued listening to your, your podcast and your thoughts and your ideas. And I know you're well-trained and, and mature in a lot of your thought processes. And so I, I really value your input. Um, and it's been helpful to bounce these ideas off of you um, because I don't think, like, I, yeah, I, I don't think I would have reached a lot of these conclusions or, or the conviction around my next actions as well if I'd not spoken. I appreciate that. No, thank Thanks, you Mike. for having me on and let me be part of the conversation. Um, great. Well, let's uh, let's wrap it up for now. Then uh, I will definitely be in touch. You'll see different things come out. I think as I summarize what this last year has been after the mm -hmm. next week or so, and commit publicly to you know changing my behavior and entering phase two and defining what that is and hopefully showcasing um, you know that in action. And, you know, I hope that these lessons, as I learn them, these methods, as I try them, these processes, tools, observations, all that kind of stuff, that that, that in and of itself is valuable to other people. Because um, that's the goal. The goal is to be worth other people's time. If I can, if I can be worth other people's time, then, then I'm happy with with my life and it's not like I wouldn't be happy in a vacuum but I'm happier if you know I've actually contributed to society <laughs> so nope I understand fully cool well uh, yeah uh, have an awesome evening Mike and thank you again so much for your nope, thank you for having me on and uh, like I said we'll stay in touch and see where this goes Take care.